This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go on this fine, cloudy Sunday. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through the 11. We're going to entertain you now until 12. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Morning, Dr. Shane. I should call you Professor Ray, shouldn't I, I suppose? I think doctor's fine. Um, <laughs> but you are a professor. I am. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, yes. uh, and uh, Although yesterday I, I didn't feel that professorous or doctorish because I, I, I found all my ceiling muscle scrubbing groups. So oh. and, and that, that was fun, and that was great waking up this morning too. So a little slower to raise the hand today, probably. Uh, and Dr. Lauren, the American Dr. Lauren, we have to distinguish you from the other one. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. The other one's home sick; she couldn't make it in, so that made my job a lot easier with the two of you being in the studio on the same day, which is is going to happen every now and then. I suppose. See, I, I was looking forward to that because I was just going to say, "Excuse me, Dr. Lauren," and just see who see answered. What see what yeah. Yeah, so anyway, uh, we've we've got some great. St- hey, I tell you a funny story this morning. This was very upsetting to me. So I thought I'd you know every now and then you got to get on your soapbox and and uh, say something. But I was at um, the supermarket, you know, the um, fluoro light type variety, and a friend of mine there was serving, and uh, this guy came along and then he, he he didn't want to wait behind me, and so she went and served him at another counter, and then afterwards she came back to me. And she goes, "Oh yeah, he didn't want to wait. He didn't want to stand beside behind someone with those effing recyclable bags." He didn't give a effing about the environment. And I was like, what? And she's quite young and she's like, oh, so you don't give a F about my future. It was quite, it was quite a moment. Wow. Yeah. All happening. And I thought, what a nice, what a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's off the chest. I'm just wondering Done. if he drives, you know, a convertible with a carburetor and, you know, Baby uh, seal for one of those uh, <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, Probably, yeah. yeah. Eating a, a um, whale donut yeah. uh, or something. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what we've got for you today, folks, is we've got an interview that um, I recorded during the week um, with uh, Abigail Harrison. Now, this is an amazing young girl. She's only about 19, but she's doing some extraordinary stuff over in the U.S. She is a space travel nut and uh, very big on the social media spaces and uh, we had a great chat which I'm going to play for you just in just a moment and then after that we have a guest who works with Dr. Ewan actually and he is an expert on wolves and dingoes and that's going to be a pretty good conversation which we'll have a little bit later followed by some news but first up I'm going to play you um, this interview that we, we, we recorded I have to apologize a little bit for the audio it was via Skype and so it's not as clean as you would get from the studio here but it's still um, very easy to understand so enjoy um, and uh, I think you'll be more interested in Mars by the time this is finished so here we go this is an interview of Abigail Harrison who is the founder of the Mars Generation uh, today we're speaking to Abigail Harrison she's the founder of a non-profit organization called the Mars Generation and she has some 700,000 online supporters and has been involved in promoting space exploration and interest in science since a very early age Abby, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Now, you're over in the U.S. at the moment. Whereabouts are you based? Yeah, so I'm nearby Boston, uh, out of Wellesley College today. Okay. Now, you've been interested in space since you were fairly young, and you're still fairly young compared to some of us. So um, give us a bit of an idea of where that interest started. Yeah, so I have been interested in space exploration and wanted to be an astronaut ever since I was probably about five years old. 
And it was a combination of two things. One of them was a wonder at the natural world. So I was really interested in, in everything around me, really, but especially so in the night sky. And so I would spend a lot of time outside looking up at the sky and the stars and imagining, you know, what's out there and asking questions about about what the stars were and if we'd ever gone there, those kinds of things. And then I also had a really heavy science fiction influence on my life from probably the time I was born because my dad is a huge sci-fi nerd. And so I grew up watching Star Wars and Babylon 5 and, you know, all of those types of shows and, and reading science fiction books and everything, um, which definitely played into that interest in interplanetary travel and, and helped it develop until I was older. Mm. Now, now, when you were about 13, you started doing some pretty serious work on promoting STEM and so forth. Now, I mean, 13 is pretty young. What, what sort of things were you doing at that point? Yeah, so when I was 13, I started uh, blogging, live blogging my journey towards becoming an astronaut, both through a traditional uh, blog setup and through curating social media channels. So I um, originally was on Twitter in order to get a quote from a NASA employee, which I had just wanted to, you know, maybe set up a phone interview with a NASA employee for a school project I was doing. That was my one reason to be on Twitter. And then I realized that there was this whole community of people who were space enthusiasts and who were really excited and really passionate about space exploration. And so I decided that this could be a really good way to make this journey not just about me and to, you know, help share this experience of becoming an astronaut with a lot more people. Mm. When did you see your first launch? I assume you've seen a few while you've been over there because you grew up during the space shuttle era, so you would have seen a couple of those, I assume? Yeah, so I actually saw one space shuttle, which was Space Shuttle Endeavour STS-134, and that was the second to last space shuttle that we ever launched. Uh, and so... I actually went down there for the um, for the end of the launch. I'm from Minnesota, so it was a little bit of a quite a trip actually from Minnesota to Florida, um, and I'd never seen a launch before. But we went down in order to see one before the program ended. Um, so that was my first launch. I also recently, well, a couple of years ago now, I guess, went to uh, Baikonur, Kazakhstan, to watch a Soyuz launch. Mm. And how do they rate compared to one another? <laughs> Um, they are almost incomparable to one another, especially because when I was 13 and I was watching the space shuttle launch, I was, um, you know, very far away, probably five miles. And I have this really great picture that I took afterwards where I'm holding my fingers up, like, with maybe a centimeter or a centimeter and a half of space in between them. And it's it's showing the distance that I actually saw the shuttle because the sky was so cloudy on the day of the shuttle launch that between the tree line and the, the cloud layers from where I was standing, we saw maybe three seconds of shuttle flight versus when I was watching the Soyuz launch in, in Baikonur, we were about a mile away, possibly a little bit less than a mile away from the launch pad and it was a completely blank sky, middle of the night, in a desert. So you had optimal optimal view. Watched it launch for about four minutes. Um, and really just the experience of that, you could feel the heat of the, of the engines on your face to the point where it was a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit worrisome. Um, you could feel things around you shaking. It was the optimal launch experience that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you, you have pretty big hopes yourself in terms of space exploration. I mean, give us a bit of an idea of what, what your ultimate goal is there personally. Yep, so my, my goals are first to become a scientist, then to become an astronaut, and eventually to be the first astronaut to walk on Mars. Okay, so no small feet. <laughs> so, well, my feet are actually kind of small, but they're <laughs> <laughs> a little bit big. <laughs> so, so you're 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 um, doing science at the moment. You're uh, you know, presumably, what what area are you going into as your specialty? Yeah, so I'm currently pursuing an undergraduate degree, a double degree in astrobiology and Russian. And so, astrobiology is the scientific field that I intend to pursue. Okay. Now we we met on on Twitter, of course, and and I noticed uh, today that you I think announced that you had an internship coming up, which sounded pretty exciting. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I'm I'm extremely excited to get to be spending ten weeks this summer down in Florida, um, working uh, in the University of Florida um, Life Sciences Labs in conjunction with Kennedy Space Center, doing bio- biological research on. Um, extremophile bacteria and uh, trying to grow them in simulated Martian conditions. Okay. And what does, I mean, what does that involve? I mean, how how real is the simulation of those growing conditions? Because I I was going to say, not everything can be simulated. (laughs) You know, the radiation levels, various other things, I assume will be shielded when we eventually get to Mars. But these things are hard to, to simulate, aren't they, some of them? Right. No, it is It is difficult to simulate, and I, I can't go into the details first because we'd be here all evening and also um, because the, the work hasn't been published yet, so it's uh, a, a closed subject. But what I can tell you is that we're simulating it to the best of our abilities using things like pressure, um, temperature, uh, soil types, those kinds of things. So really trying to get everything that we can. Obviously, like you mentioned, there's some things that are really hard to simulate, partly because, um, you know, radiation, it's a, it's a very, um, what's the word? It's, it's frequently changing is what it is because you have a lot of, um, inconsistency when you're talking about things like cosmic radiation, mm. which we don't necessarily have a way to, either predict or replicate the effect of that or the, the frequency of those types of events. Mm. Now, with the idea of you being the first person to walk on Mars, it's your hope, how, how much luck is involved in that? Because if, if you were to sort of track back 50 years to the Apollo period and so forth, you had to be just the right age at just the right time and be in just the right place to get into those programs. I mean, the Mars... The Mars stuff has been delayed and delayed and delayed. I mean, is it on track for your age, your group? Where, do you think you're in the right sort of position to be the one to potentially get into those programs now? Absolutely. I would say that anyone who's um, a college undergraduate down to probably a middle schooler, which is about 11 or 12 years old in the U.S., uh, is within the right age bracket of potentially being on a future Mars mission. When we look at the Mars missions, we're looking strongly at having them within the 2030s, so at some time point in that decade, which would place me um, between about 35 to 45, depending on when in that decade it happens. And that really is a good age for an astronaut for that type of mission because you uh, are not a brand-new astronaut. You're not a young astronaut at that point. You've hopefully had experience in the program and have done a 
um, a long duration space mission beforehand, but you're also not old. Mm. So you're, you're fresh enough to still be considered for a novel mission like this. Yeah. Now, Abby, I want to move on now to your nonprofit organization and talk about that because that's something pretty exciting. It's called the Mars Generation. Um, you, you founded it. Give us an idea of what, what it does, um, why, why you put it together, and, and where you hope it's going to go. Yeah, so I'll give a little bit more back, background on that before I launch into the founding just to explain where the idea really came from, which was that when I was 15 years old, I went to Kazakhstan, like I mentioned earlier, to watch the Soyuz launch. But I wasn't just there to watch the Soyuz launch. I was actually there beginning a six-month uh, work period as the Earth liaison to my um, Italian astronaut Luca Parmitano while he was on board the International Space Station. And so during that time, I was I was sharing his experiences living and working in space with a different uh, demographic group than he necessarily could reach. So much younger people, um, and, and just like in that sense. Um, and after he came back down, I realized that there was still this big gap, I guess I would say in, um, in space inspiration. So there wasn't a lot out there for people who grew up in areas like I did in Minnesota where you don't have a space center that you can drive to or somewhere that you can go and see launches. And that's true for a lot of people around the world. And so I decided to continue doing this outreach work with, uh, with space exploration. And so when I went to college, um, I transitioned it from being a uh, just a general type of outreach program that was happening into an actual nonprofit organization, which is called the Mars Generation. And so the Mars Generation has three core programs that we operate. The first is our Future of Space Outreach Program, which is the continuation of that story that I just told about space inspiration outreach um, and involves a lot of speaking at conferences, a lot of uh, doing news, a lot of writing, a lot of curating social media channels, that kind of stuff, just to excite and interest people about space. Um, we also have our Student Space Ambassador Program, which is open for students around the world. And we have, I believe, over 850 students signed up at this point. And it's a leadership program to try and um, give students the, the necessary uh, encouragement and resources that they can go out and be change makers in their communities and advocates for STEM and space exploration. And our third program is that we have a Space Camp Scholarship Program. So every year we give out 10 full-paid scholarships to students to go to space camp. And they're really special because they don't just cover space camp tuition, but they also cover things like transportation and a small stipend and a flight suit. Um, and our, our goal is to reach into low-income households and give kids this opportunity that otherwise would be completely out of their um, out of their means. Oh. Oh, I mean, that's, some of that stuff just sounds absolutely fantastic. I mean, in particular, the, the scholarships for Space Camp, is, is this the first year that you've run it, or have you already had a group that have gone through previously with those scholarships? Yeah, so we actually, this is our second year with the Space Camp scholarships. We just announced our second group of 10 scholars. So if you go over to the marsgeneration.org, you can read um, small biographies and see all of their pictures and read about the the outreach projects that they're going to do combined with their, their trip to space camp. Um, but so, yeah, this is our, our second group of 10. Oh. So you're heavily supporting your potential competition for this Mars mission. 
<laughs> that, yeah, that people always ask me is, is why do this? Why interest more people in space exploration? Why try and get young people especially to to take interest in this if they're going to be your competition in the future? And it's it's because it, it definitely is not about it being a competition. It's um, If it ends up being that one of these students is more fit to go to Mars than I am, I would happily step aside because the, the primary goal is to have a highly successful mission. Mm. And the reality of the situation is that a lot of students who want to be astronauts um, end up funneling into, for various life reasons, whatever they may be, funneling into other areas of STEM and especially other areas at NASA. And so it's by exciting and interesting people at a young age in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, that we can get all of the incredibly important supporting roles that we need people working in in order to have a successful space program in the future. So it's not just the astronauts who are important. It's really the thousands of other people, the engineers and the publicists and the physicists and everyone else who helps put together a mission that we're trying to really bring out. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we know here in Australia is we're sadly one of the, I think we're the only OECD country that doesn't have a actual space program of some type. We're very good at paying other countries for satellite time and so forth, but we, <laughs> we don't have one. Do, do you have, or are you aware of people, students from Australia who are, uh, you know, signed up to your program? I'm not personally aware of them yet, but like I mentioned, we have 850 mm. students in our program, so I um, wouldn't necessarily know the location of each of them. Yeah. Um, and in terms of uh, the scholarships and other things, I mean, how much are you sort of pushing the international context of that? Because as we know, uh, well, the, the International Space Station, I guess, is a, an example a particular example in time where we could do an international type program. Um, that time might not come again, actually, or it will come in a different way. But exploration of space is an international game, and, and you only have to look at the people working in any of these centres to see that. So h how much interest are you getting internationally for, for the Mars Generation, the programs you're running? Currently, our, um, like I mentioned, our ambassador program is open worldwide, but our space camp scholarships are limited to the continental United States right now as a matter of funding mm. in the sense that it's um, it's very expensive to bring people from other parts of the world to Alabama in the U.S. And so until we have uh, higher funding levels, it's um, only for continental U.S. But I completely agree with you that especially with the what we've seen from the International Space Station and what we hope to see with future Mars missions, because I, I fully support the concept of having international cooperation on long-term space exploration, um, that this is fostering this international connection between students is very important. Now, sometime before you were born, I remember watching a movie called Space Camp. I'm sure it's nothing like that in reality. Tell us what, what actually happens um, with these students at, at that particular facility. What, what do they What do they do? <laughs> I assume so you, they, they don't accidentally launch a space shuttle. I assume. No, sadly, <laughs> it's a little unrealistic. I have seen the movie Space Camp. Um, I actually went to Space Camp for a couple years before I saw the movie, before I even knew the movie was a thing. Right. Um, because I was there one year when they were filming a new a new Space Camp movie, and so we watched the old one. 
And I was like, man, that's not at all what it's like. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you definitely, you don't get to go to space, sadly, at space camp, but it sure feels like you do. Um, Space camp, from the moment that you wake up in the morning to the moment that you go to sleep, it it feels a lot like you're uh, training as an astronaut. You get to do things like, um, like there's a lot of engineering challenges that you do throughout the week. There's space history. There's learning how to pilot both. It used to be space shuttles. Now it's um, things like the Canada Arm or uh, capsule technology. Really doing a lot of simulations with the International Space Station and what you would do if you were in an emergency situation in space. Um, so you learn you learn all of these these logbooks about spacecraft forwards and backwards to the point where you can make decisions at the the drop of a pin. And so it. Um, it, they do a really great job of, of making it feel very realistic, mm. I'll say. Now, last couple of questions for you. First of all, with regards to the trip to Mars, are you seeing the, is the hope there that it's there and back or there and colonize? Definitely there and back at this point because currently we don't have the necessary technology to sustain human life long term in outer space or on um, the surface of a planet like Mars. And so, in essence, a, a one-way trip would be a suicide mission. And there are a couple of reasons that that's really not something that's in the books for us within the near future, at least in, in my opinion. And the first one is that it's highly likely that it will, that NASA will be involved in, if not the first mission to Mars, which I think it will, a um, one of the first. And NASA... Uh, as a government-funded organization that's that's very open to public um, critique, has a, a strong preference for not sending astronauts on suicide missions. Um, the the second reason, which ties in really strongly with that, and why I don't think anybody will do that, is that uh, there's no quicker way to lose public approval and support for your space exploration mission than by killing human beings in space. Um, it really has a, a, an extremely negative effect on the public opinion of some of a mission like that. And so it would it would definitely be a, um, a mission killer to to have that happen. Mm. Just finally, what what do you think about all this in, this incredible amount of work being done at the moment with companies like SpaceX and that. How does that fit into this game? Because, I mean, for some of us, you know, we remember watching TV shows like The Thunderbirds where rockets did take off and and then land and then take off again, but SpaceX have just done this. It seems as though they'll be a very big part of the mix for, for anything to do with Mars exploration. Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that because private industry of space exploration is one of my favourite topics to talk about. Um, I have been so excited and so happy to get to be a part of the, of the generation that's watching, uh, private industry space exploration take off really before our, our eyes. It seems like every, every couple months there's something new and exciting that's happening with that. And I, I see it in, uh, two different ways. One of which is that it's a really, really positive and beneficial thing, um, especially in the United States because as private industry starts to take over the exploration of Earth's low uh, low orbit, um, which is where we currently have our operations on the International Space Station and where the, the space shuttles used to operate, 
NASA can move on to another project, such as going to Mars, because in in all reality, space agencies like NASA can only really focus on one major project at a time. And so if we're stuck in low Earth orbit, we can't also be exploring Mars. And so we've spent a lot of time, about 30 years now, exploring low Earth orbit, and now it's time for the government to turn that over to private industry and to allow them to make what they will of that and to, to really take the reins in that situation and the government to take on a, a different task. Now, the other side of that is that when you have private industry, you have a lot of a lot more um, creativity being done because you have more competition in the market. And that pushes people to think of things in new ways and to try different things out, and you really start to get um, better better uh, procedures from that. And so hopefully that will positively impact not just work done in low Earth orbit, but also have an impact on the ability of us that we have to do um, long-term missions, such as missions to Mars in the near future. Speaking of long-term missions, have you, you booked a seat to sit and watch the first Orion rocket take off? I mean, that's going to be quite something, probably the biggest rocket since, you know, uh, the I guess the Apollo days. Yeah, so the Orion is actually um, a, a capsule yep. technology mm-hmm. in which uh, the first launch of that happened, I want to say, about a year ago. might have been longer than that now, but it was uh, an Orion capsule on board a Delta IV heavy lift vehicle, and they were testing just the capsule technology. Um, I, I do believe that what you were referring to was the space launch system. Yes, of course. The actual rocket system that they're planning to take the Orion um, up on. And I haven't I haven't booked a seat yet for that, but I, I have a suspicion that I'm gonna uh, gonna be there. Yeah. Maybe so. I'll maybe I'll see <laughs> you there if it's a long flight from Australia and the delays in rocket launches can be confounding. Abby, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Look, good luck with the Mars Generation work. Um, hopefully people here in Australia will be able to engage with that as well and I think it's fantastic that someone as young as yourself you know, has all these amazing plans but also is putting so much more back into stoking the competition in terms of all the people who are interested in this area and as you said, all the people who are needed, not just the astronauts but the, the literally tens of thousands of people involved in these sorts of programs. So Congratulations on what you've done so far and good luck for the future. Thank you so much, Shane. It was a pleasure to get to chat with you and I hope that uh, everyone listening has enjoyed hearing my story and heads on over to the marsgeneration.org to learn more about us. Thanks, Abby. Three. You are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. It is about 11.30. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Thomas Newsom. He is a postdoctorate research fellow at Deakin University and the University of Sydney. Thomas, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me on the show. As, now, you work uh, with Dr. Ewan as well, who's one of our regular hosts. How, how do you handle that? Uh, well, we collaborate on many different things, and we share many shared opinions on on the topics we we um, that we work on. So it's quite a good working relationship. Uh, that sounds great. Now um, he, he he gave us very high expectations. Um, just you know, put you in the picture. Now you're working in particular on on some of the larger predators, and I should say that uh, you and I have agreed in a month or so we're going to do a show just on the big predators because we thought um, there's a lot. In the, you hear a lot about sharks and various things at the moment. We're going to try and bring it all together into one show. 
that should be fun. Now, but you're working on how essentially us humans are interacting with the reintroduction of some of these predators into environments. So, first of all, give us a bit of an idea of where some of these predators are being reintroduced because, I mean, people don't think about the fact that in many of the traditional uh, ecosystems, they're just gone, aren't they? I mean, the, the top apex predators are just gone. Sure. They, we had a probably a two to 300-year period where humans literally tried to eradicate most of these large carnivores because of the perceived and actual impacts that they cause on human industries and livelihoods. Mm. Uh, the most famous reintroduction project is in the United States, in Yellowstone National Park, where wolves were reintroduced after a 70-year absence. Mm. And that project has allowed scientists to explore what happens when a large carnivore like the wolf returns to um, a wilderness setting like Yellowstone National Park. So, so in that case, what was, I mean, what became the top predator in Yellowstone without the wolf there? I mean, what was at the top of the food chain? Well, you could always argue that humans are the top of the food right. chain, yeah. um, but cougars or mountain lions, as they are also referred to, um, existed in some parts throughout that region. Okay. Uh, yeah. In, in Yellowstone, wasn't one of the, the larger impacts that the wolf made deer stop grazing open? That they actually drove deer to more protected areas so deer couldn't outstrip the land and you actually got less land erosion and that affected rivers and runoff? Yes, yeah. in short, but um, there are two main pathways by which wolves and other large carnivores, including dingoes, um, can impact on ecosystems. And one is by eating the prey. So in the case in Yellowstone, the main prey were elk. And the other effect is actually changing their behaviour, which is linked back to theories based around the concept of a landscape of fear. So these animals are actually changing their behaviour, moving away into safer areas where they are less likely to get eaten by a wolf. Mm. And, and this is this is not like, you know, I'm elk number 104 and I, I decide I'm no longer afraid anymore. This is the next generation of elk having never experienced being eaten by a wolf or being chased by a wolf, just completely not having that. Um, that sort of been, is, is that what's happening? The instincts that they sort of typically would have in the pack are just gone? Absolutely. And, you know, a 70-year period is a long time mm, frame. Yeah. You have multiple generations of elk coming through in that period. So many of them would never have seen um, or knew what a, a wolf was. And all of a sudden they have something chasing them um, when they were reintroduced. Mm. That's going to be a pretty steep learning curve for the first few elk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, at some stage they all learned that, you yeah. know, back, way back when. Um, I mean, what does it mean, though, in terms of... So if we took, you know, the wolves have been out of that, the Yellowstone region for 70 years. I mean, I, I could say, so what? I mean, what what has that done to the ecosystem? Is it, is it still flourishing? Is it just changed and modified? Or is there some big negativities associated with not having an apex predator like the wolf there? Well, I guess it flourished in some respects because uh, the elk in particular had no natural predator. Mm, yeah. And so they became overabundant in the absence of that predator. Uh, but that in turn meant that they were grazing in the more open and riparian areas, overgrazing uh, the shrubs and some of the tree communities in particular. And that has flown effects to the way water moves through the landscape. Mm. And that's why the studies have linked the different trophic cascades from wolves through to elk down to the plants and, and so forth. In 70 years, is that, that's not enough time to rebalance because at some stage, presumably, you know, ecosystems always rebalance in, in a new setting. 
how, how long is so 70 years is not long enough presumably at the moment for that to have occurred or is it because there's obviously still big problems well the 70 year period was the period where wolves were, were absent, absent obviously yeah. um and so it's not so much a rebalance during that period but animals are responding to the absence of that natural mm. predator uh so it was enough for example to have devastating impacts on aspen communities yeah. some of the shrub communities it doesn't take long for populations of the prey of these large carnivores to increase dramatically in numbers yeah so seven years ago hunting was different the number of people near yellowstone was different so now you've reintroduced a predator 70 years later where the population density is different um society's approach um what we consume is different hunters have far more advanced weaponry but but also our, our society is encroached on land use in that area so how does how does a wolf now i mean before they, i mean wolves were eradicated because they were afraid they were going to eat sheep and cattle how does that work now that you 7 years later where people have changed a lot in that area over 70 years when you put a wolf back in sure well wolves are very opportunistic species and they will live in many different environments uh the recent study that we've been working on um has looked at or started to compare what happens when a large carnivore starts to move into a more human dominated landscape uh it has relevance to north america uh wolves are returning to areas in washington state in oregon even to california um and also throughout europe there are many large carnivores returning to human dominated landscapes uh these include lynx wolverines bears and also wolves and in these systems um what we were really looking at was what happens when humans have have altered the system but also provided them with artificial food sources that food source might actually be livestock or carcasses that are available but also uh, garbage that is available in waste facilities mm. and in many instances uh these large carnivores are turning to this alternative food source um in the absence of wild prey so you you've got i mean you're sort of pulling multiple strings at the same time then aren't you because you you're trying to study the reintroduction of some of these large um large carnivores and in the hope that that will perhaps rebalance some of these ecosystems but they they're saying well you know the elks are good but i got to chase those you know like i can I, there's a garbage bin over here with burger in it i'll go in the i mean how do you how do you untie these untangle these various effects all going on at the same time well the best way is to simply compare and contrast the ecology behavior of these species in areas where they have access to these artificial food sources and compare that to more naturalized settings like in Yellowstone National Park uh the other way is to actually study a population that has access to a food source at a garbage dump and then experimentally modify that food source to see what happens um when they don't have access to that particular food source. And what and what sort of things is the early work showing? I mean is is the the impact as big as you would expect? Well, most of my personal studies have been on dingo populations mm. in central Australia in the Tanami Desert which is about 6 hours northwest of Alice Springs and in that system uh the dingo population had access to vast quantities of food at a garbage dump i actually had um quantified the energetic contents of 48 hours worth of food that was dumped in that garbage tip and it could feed 225 dingoes per day wow and so i studied the the diet uh the movements uh the genetics and the social structures of these dingoes that had access to this food source 
I compared it to populations that were living in a pastoral station mm-hmm. and also to populations much further away that were living in a more naturalized context. And, and what do you find? Because I can imagine if they're, is, this is kind of like partial domestication, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're not quite domesticated, but they're certainly getting their food sources, though they were, they were domesticated. So what does that mean in terms of how those dingoes would interact with other dingoes further away? Sure. We found that they had, um, changes to their dietary selection. Uh, in this instance, 90% of the diet was rubbish from the rubbish tip. Mm. And then the other proportion was um, particular animals that they found along the journey. Um, that stood in stark contrast to animals away from the mine that were primarily eating reptiles, um, in particular blue tongue lizards. Um, so there were big changes to their diet. That meant that some of them had much larger body sizes. Um, most were about 20% larger than those dingoes that were living away from the mine. Uh, based on the home ranges that we calculated from fitting a portion of that population with GPS collars, mm-hmm. uh, the dingoes around the mine had a home range size of about two square kilometres. The dingoes away from the mine, in stark contrast, had home ranges of up to 2,000 square oh, wow. kilometres. That's extraordinary. So big, big differences. And interestingly, um, dingoes are typically referred to as territorial animals that might defend their um, their home range area from intruders. Right. Uh, but in this case, because of the vast quantities of food that were available, there was probably no reason to do so. Yeah. But we documented dingoes travelling... 80 kilometres into the mine to go and get a feed, and then they'll travel 80 kilometres back out to live in their more, more naturalised landscape. So you could essentially sit there on any given day and watch different groups of dingoes come in to get their feed and then go back out to where they spend the majority of their time. So it's a supermarket. They, go, they so, drive, drive to the supermarket, they get their food, and then they go back home. So, so I was wondering, um, you, you've basically put dingoes on a Western diet instead of blue-tongued skink. And so while you said they're larger because they're more abundant of food, are they healthier? Well, yes and no. They are, some of them were very big and, um, and looked quite healthy. Others looked absolutely obese, like more a Labrador that you'd see in an urban area. Um, I suspect most of the animals that were very large in that system would have trouble surviving in the absence of that food. Okay. Uh, dingoes on average are about 15 kilos and most of the dingoes in the arid zone are even smaller, around 10 to 11 kilos. So if you're a 22 or 23 kilometer, kilo, kilogram sized animal, you have to eat a lot more food to eat, to, to meet your energetic requirements. So I think if you remove that food source, which in fact they have now, and we're studying the, the flow and effects, um, most of those larger animals um, are, are not visible mm-hmm. anymore. So, Thomas, um, I mean, the dingo is a crucial part of the Australian ecosystem that's been under heavy pressure for a long time. I mean, given this new knowledge, I mean, what, what do we have to do additionally to try and keep the dingo going and, and have it as, you know, the, I think I think the, the difference in the range over which these dingoes are interacting is extraordinary. So how do we maintain that to make sure that their populations intermix and they're genetically viable, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Well, certainly when they're in more human-modified systems, it means means creating a, an environment where they have access to wild prey and their their access to artificial resources, including carcasses on on 
um, livestock properties um, and so forth are unavailable or in very low quantities for mm. um, the dingoes to access. And that means that they would be uh, carrying out their normal functional roles in the ecosystem rather than getting easy feeds um, on the paddock. But I guess the other element is that um, most of the threats to dingoes come from the way that we manage them and they are controlled throughout much of their range um, because of the impacts they do cause, particularly on the sheep industry, mm. uh, but less so on the cattle industry. And then we've also gone to quite extreme lengths to... Um, stop them from moving into areas through cluster fencing and of course we have the longest fence in the world the dingo fence which runs for five and a half thousand kilometers and attempts to exclude dingoes from about a quarter of the continent yeah thomas it's it's really interesting work and it's great um to see that actual data coming in so well done uh keep it up and um the more we learn about these these apex predators uh, the better I, i'm just fascinated by all of them sharks dingoes wolves a whole lot i think they're the most extraordinary examples of where evolution can get you up after a long period of time that, that there is. So um, thanks for chatting to us today. Thank you for having me on the show. Dr. Thomas Newsom is a postdoctoral research fellow at Deakin University and the University of Sydney. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with some news for you. Three. Triple. Uh, you are listening to Triple R. If you're wondering what tracks we've played today, the last one was Sophie Coe with Objects in This Mirror, and before that was Chris Hoffman with The Rains Are Coming. Time for some news, folks. I think we'll start with you, Dr. Lauren. What has been uh, floating your boat this week? Uh, well, so many things, um, but the one that I've chosen, uh, so there's a paper that was published this week that will um, have archaeologists everywhere calling to save their dirt. So... Uh, DNA left in cave soils has been shown to reveal um, evidence of ancient human occupants. So bone fragments are typically um, analyzed um, to provide info of where and when ancient humans have been, but bone fragments are interestingly hard to come by. Mm. And so scientists have known that um, DNA can survive in ancient soils and sediments since 2003, so for a while now. But this technique has been previously um, used on plants, animals, fungi, um, microbes, all of which are very common in soil samples compared to the presence of human DNA. So just to give some perspective um, on this, there is on the order of trillions of DNA fragments in a soil sample the size of a teaspoon. Okay. So it's no easy task to sift through all these different mm. types and mm. actually identify the human DNA. Um, and researchers from the Max Planck Institute actually took on this challenge of sifting through the soil to identify and examine human DNA. So they analyzed the um, sediment samples with techni techniques that fish out the mammalian mitochondrial DNA um, because it's much more abundant than the nuclear DNA. And um, they also had to make sure that they weren't looking at modern genetic material, which um, is actually an issue in um, these places, you know, these, these big sites where they've got tens of people around. So you can actually contaminate the modern DNA um, and ancient DNA. So uh, ha, ha, you can tell the difference? Between well, the two, presumably. Apparently. Yeah. So they actually, they only analyzed short, um, sequences of DNA that, um, demonstrated the chemical damage typical of ancient DNA. Okay. So they were, yeah, that's how they determined between those two. Um, and they actually found, um, Neanderthal DNA in the soil from cave sites ranging all the way from Spain, um, up to Russia where bones and tools have previously been found. So that was kind of a good confirmation. They found DNA in the soil where bones, um, have also been found. And they also found, um, 
Denisovan, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Denisovan DNA, which is the Neanderthal's close cousin. And um, they found that in the only site uh, where uh, Denisovan's bone has previously been found, which is really interesting. And so um, I guess why do we care about this? Uh, the technique actually has potential to impact a wide range of different um, projects in this area. So, for example, it could give us further details about the, the Denisovan because um, we don't actually know that much about about them and also researchers investigating you know underwater settlements off the coast of england um, have high hopes for this dirt dna as it were as it could reveal further details of human migration patterns where bone samples aren't really readily available and hmm. um, so yeah ultimately this new technique has the potential to change how archaeologists ex- excavate by telling them to save all their dirt because you never know where some uh neanderthal genomes might be hiding that, that, that's interesting you know so they, they come back from their overseas trip and they've got a shoebox with a bone in it and a container filled with dirt <laughs> like how much do you bring back exactly yeah, yeah. Like, where do you, I mean, they take samples from all over the place, but that, that's, that's quite extraordinary because it means uh, a lot of the sites in particular that have already been exhumed and looked at, um, probably are worth going back and checking out. Yeah. Mm. Just the data processing on that oh, probably yeah. wasn't possible well, 10 years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it's cool stuff. Dr. Ray, um, what do you got? Actually, Dr. Shane, I, oddly enough, we're, we're still in the ancient DNA <laughs> uh, theme. Uh, I actually saw this article on the ancient genomics of horse domestication. Uh, and uh, this is researchers out of Denmark, France, and Germany actually sequenced the DNA of or genome of 14 horses from the Bronze and Iron Ages. Oh. Now, now this wasn't scooping out of the bottom of a cave, but um, <laughs> this was actually primarily in Russia and Kazakhstan where there were actually burial sites where people were buried with their horses and things. So they actually had, mm. vi- and, and some of these tombs were very well preserved. So unlike the stuff stuck in the bottom of a cave, they had, they, they actually had very good quality mm-hmm. sources. And I, I mean, first, me as, 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 as not a, someone in, in, in biology went, wait, you could sequence a genome from something two to 4,000 years old, which is pretty wild to me. Apparently you can do it even with the dirt that was on the bottom of the tomb. So, yeah. okay, I'm a little behind there. But anyway, um, and so what was interesting is because horse domestication happened about, I think, five and a half thousand years ago, and it transformed um, society because we could tr- transportation could go faster. And we've had horses affecting transportation up to the 20th century when horsepower mm. is replaced by cars. And, and so you ask, uh, how does it compare to wild horses? And what they found was, as they looked at the genome, all the variants... Um, because horses have been domesticated for at least a thousand years by the time they're sampling it. Compared to wild horses, they saw variants around color, physiological development, locomotion had all started to come into place. So you domesticate the animal and their genes actually change. Um, one interesting thing was though, present day horses, aside from having all these variants about color and they have a lot more mutations in them and, and those things all sit well with when animals are domesticated, modern horses have Amazing mitochondrial variation, but their Y chromosome actually doesn't vary much at all hmm. across most horses. Okay. And, but, and, and they reckon this was from a limited number of stallions sourcing, but it's not the domestication process. Cause in 4,000 years ago, the Y chromosome still had a lot of heterogeneity. So th- like the, the domestication of horses has actually evolved more than just the domestication process over time hmm. to actually cher- to get to the present-day genome didn't just happen from the first thousand years. It, it still evolved over time. Hmm. And I kind of went, I never even thought of that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. because, yeah, uh, I mean, we're good at domestication as humans, but um, the impacts Yeah, and, and apparently the, ho- the horse pathway is a little different than most typical yeah. domestications for food. Right. Because, you know, we did them for color, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at some point there was the <clears throat> stallion breeding program, which reduced the... 
Gene pool. Gene pool. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned uh, Cassini was starting its final, oh, yeah. final trek towards death in September where, um, so if you, have, if you haven't been following folks, um, Cassini's a bus-sized probe that's almost 20 years old that's been doing some great work around Saturn. And if you look up Saturn on uh, the internet, you will find a million amazing pictures and most of them were taken by Cassini. Actually, in fact, if it's a decent one, it was taken by Cassini. And so it's getting to the end of its life. And what they don't want is for it to accidentally crash into one of the moons like Enceladus, who we we think might be a good location for potential life. So they don't want any contamination occurring there. And so they've got this very strategic period of um, what they call deep dive orbits, which will bring Cassini finally crashing into Saturn itself. But one of the first things they did was move it into a new orbital plane where it actually sort of flies between the rings of Saturn and Saturn itself. So in that region, the gap. Now, no one's ever explored that region before. So you've you've got to realize that at this point in time, um, uh, Cassini is moving as it comes through. It's something like 124,000 kilometers per hour. In retrospect, your car should not go more (laughs) than 100 kilometers per hour. So if you think of what happens to a bug on your windscreen at 100 kilometers per hour, imagine what a small piece of ice or rock would do to the spacecraft at over 120,000 kilometers per hour. I mean, basically, it's like a very, 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 very fast bullet. It would just pierce through, destroy the craft, you know, cause most likely catastrophic damage. And so what they did was they actually turned its main antenna and moved that in the front of the craft. So as it was going through, it had something of a shield. And to be honest, I think this is kind of like holding up a piece of tissue paper as someone (laughs) throws rocks at you. Um, But, you know, it was there. And and they made it through. And, of course, we didn't know whether this would happen. And this week it did happen. And and even more spectacular pictures started coming back from Cassini. And this is one. There's another 22-odd similar orbits that are still going to occur. So even in its last dying months, this craft that has given us the most amazing pictures of the Saturn, Saturn moon system um, is still bringing in more new data. And some of the things that they've, they've looked at are just um, extraordinary. Like there's these cloud rings that haven't quite mixed and they're not sure why they're not mixing. You know, there's all these new dynamics around Saturn. Because we're closer now, we can see new things that we didn't see before. So it's, it's not over yet, folks. It's going to be an exciting few months as these, these orbits continue and get closer and closer to Saturn and extraordinary stuff. So the bus survived which I think is great. Um, interesting stuff. Now, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It on that exciting note. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ray, good to see you. Good to see you too. We're going to uh, talk to you again next week, folks, with more science. Uh, for now, I'm going to hand over to Cam, who's over there. He's got a lot of people here today. It must be a very exciting show coming up. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere, and enjoy the rest of the day. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.